Well, good evening, everybody. We've seen the, the video for a couple of weeks now, right? So we know what's going on there. Uh, good evening. Welcome to the Hallows Church. Glad that you're here with us tonight. Uh, I always get here, and uh, I just I, I get I got here at 4:30 today, and I was like, man, the sun's out. There's like parking spaces all along 36 here. Like, is anybody coming to church tonight? And then like five minutes before, bam, everybody fills up the room. So thank you for participating, for being a part of our worship gathering tonight and participating in worship so eagerly. I love hearing the voices uh, singing out loud. And Corey, thanks for leading us uh, in our corporate worship tonight. Well, as we continue our study through Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, I have the honor of leading us through our next section of scripture that we'll be studying tonight, which begins in chapter 3 at verse 17. We'll be going through chapter 4, verse 1. Now, don't worry. It's only about six verses, so it's not like we're covering an entire chapter. Uh, But as we bring chapter 3 to a close, it sets us up uh, to finally head into the conclusion of this letter, this short letter uh, to this beloved church in the city of Philippi. If you will, pray with me one more time as we jump into the word together and we'll read our passage. God, thanks so much for your goodness and grace. Uh, We clearly experience that through the cross of Jesus. Thank you for loving us, Jesus, and being obedient to the Father, even to the very point of death on a cross. Thank you for pursuing us, for being patient with us, for being merciful towards us, and being gracious towards us. And in these moments, as we sit under your word, uh, God, we ask by the Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts, that you would expose uh, the places of darkness, and you would shine the light of your spirit on those places, uh, that you would bring about a great sense of understanding and comprehension and application of the scriptures, and that you would empower our lives, Holy Spirit, that as we leave this place, we would be more than ready and to boldly proclaim this good news of the gospel as we receive it from your word tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, again, turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. If you don't own a Bible, uh, there's one, there should be one in the pew back right in front of you. Uh, and also, if you don't own one, we have copies of the scriptures available in the lobby or the foyer area or the entrance, whatever number of different ways you call that. The church I grew up in, we called it the vestibule. Anybody heard that before? So, uh, yeah, there's Bibles available in the vestibule. If you don't own one, we'd love to gift you with a copy of the scriptures on your way out tonight. Beginning at verse 17, Paul writes, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I think one of the greatest privileges of being a disciple or follower of Jesus is that we are given a new identity as his ambassadors. And as such, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he has entrusted us with both the ministry and the message of reconciliation. 
As we engage in this ministry and proclaim this message, which is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get to experience or see one of the most miraculous of things take place. As people hear and begin to respond, to embrace the gospel message, we get to to witness them being transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. We literally witness them, watch, we watch them come alive from spiritual death into eternal life. Now, this isn't something uh, that I think should be exclusive to those who are in vocational ministry, who are in the ministry. A lot of times we think about people who are in our life that are far from Jesus, and we think, man, if I could just get them to my pastor, if I can get them to my friend who's really gifted in evangelism, if I can just bring them to the church service, then they'll hear the gospel. And we do want those things to happen when we gather in this space. But this should be a normal uh, happening in the life of an everyday disciple. Why? Because in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that we're all ministers of reconciliation. It is our privilege to usher people into the presence of Jesus as we proclaim the good news about him. Now, this in and of itself is the work of church planting. We step into a place or into an area that is underserved by, with the gospel. We want to bring the gospel to bear on people's lives, to see them transferred from death to life eternal. When I think about the Apostle Paul writing this letter with Timothy to this most beloved church, planted some almost 10 years before the writing of this letter, I can't help but imagine Paul remembering perhaps when and how many of these disciples in Philippi that he's writing to first heard and responded to the gospel message. This is the work of church planning, a work that God has even begun here in the city of Seattle in the life of the Hallows Church just five short years ago. And unbeknownst to us how this would all work out over the course of these last five years, God has begun expressions of this church. And the desire that we have is that this work would continue by making disciples who then in turn continue the work of engaging those who are far from Jesus, engaging them, loving them, praying for them, proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them so that they too might have the opportunity to respond to this good news of Jesus and their lives be transformed. So one of the privileges that we have is seeing people brought from death to life. But one of the greatest challenges, and I would even say heartbreaking things that we experience as followers of Jesus, is seeing someone that we've either had the privilege to lead to Jesus, to lead them to trust in the gospel and walk with the Savior, or those whom we've had fellowship with who have professed faith in Christ, to witness them turn and walk away from the faith. Now, if we're reminded of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, we spent pretty much the entirety of last year journeying through Mark's gospel, if you were here with us. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower, where he talks about the different kinds of soil in which the seed of the gospel fall. And one of the things that we take away from that is not not every heart that that the, the seed of the word falls on embraces the word, embraces the gospel. But we also learn from that that not every heart that does embrace it will continue to walk faithfully with Jesus. Some, perhaps even many, unfortunately, will fall away. And this is a heartbreaking reality in the life of a follower of Jesus. Paul addresses both of these things in the passage that we'll be studying tonight. 
But it's in light of the dangers of divisions and false doctrines, both of which threaten our joy in Christ and the advancement of the gospel, that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi to warn them, to encourage them, to admonish them to stand firm and to strive in unity for the advancement of the gospel. And throughout the letter, he's encouraging them and how God is the one who is the author. God is the one who began this good work in them. God is the one who is at work both to will and to do his good pleasure. But he's also reminding them, as we've already seen before in chapter two, that they still, we still have a responsibility to respond to God's work as he is at work in and through our lives. I think we often approach the Bible in search of answers. We want to to increase in knowledge. We come to the Bible to get more information. And by God's grace, he's given us the scriptures to reveal who he is and and his character and the, the glorious deeds of what he has done. But the Bible is not all about providing information. And I think even as we come to this letter to the Philippian church, if we miss the fact that Paul is not writing for imitation for it for information but instead for imitation then we miss something huge especially as we come to this passage tonight and Paul is not writing for information he is writing for imitation and to that end he extends in this passage first the invitation to imitate after he's put forth Jesus as an example, as he's put forth Titus and Epaphroditus as examples, Paul then adds himself to the list of those that he wants to encourage these Philippian disciples and us today to pattern their lives after. And all those, he says, not only them, but all those who walk according to his example. Now, Paul isn't just insinuating that he's got this this Christian life down in such a way that he's the only one that's doing it right. But I think as he extends this invitation for the Philippians to imitate his example, he's, he's thinking in very particular terms. I think he's pointing back to what he expressed in chapter 1, verse 27, where he writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you. And here it is, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, what examples do the Philippians have of of what it looks like to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel? Well, they've got Paul and Timothy. If you rewind back to Acts chapter 16, where we get the background for how the church in Philippi began, we find that Paul shows up in a place in an area called Derby and Lystra. And as he's there, he meets a young disciple, uh, a young teenage uh, boy by the name of Timothy. And Timothy, being a disciple already, is is growing in his walk with the Lord in such a way that the brothers in that area speak well of him. They commend him to Paul, and Paul takes very, very much interest in him, says, I want him to come along with me. So he packs Timothy up and gets him ready, and they they head out. Now, not long after leaving uh, Timothy's hometown, Lystra and Derby, Paul receives a vision. Acts 16 tells us that he wanted to go into one direction, but the spirit of Jesus forbid him. It hindered him from going there. And he received a vision of a man standing in a door, a Macedonian man saying, come over here. So Paul knew, okay, 
Jesus doesn't want me to go over here, but he obviously wants me to go over here. And so they set off. He picks up all of his companions, Timothy. And if we read the text, we find out that Paul ends up in jail when he's in Philippi, right? Who is he in jail with? But Silas. So not only is it Paul and Timothy, but it's Silas. And because we have the record of it in Acts, then we have to conclude that Luke is also there. So this band of brothers heads towards Macedonia. And where do they end up first when they head towards Macedonia? But in Philippi. The church in Philippi is the first church that Paul and Timothy plant together. So when Paul letters back to this church to encourage them, to admonish them, to to offer some correction, of course he would include Timothy in the greeting because they all know him. And when it comes to inviting them to imitate their example, Because it's been about 10 years since this church has been planted, and it's been about 10 years since Paul met Timothy, and this was the first church they planted together, they have seen how Paul and Timothy have labored together in unity, in humility, how they have striven side by side in unity for the faith of the gospel. And so he says, join in imitating us. Why is this so important? Why does Paul admonish them to imitate their example of how they strive side by side in the faith of the gospel? Well, we saw last week from Pastor Jeff how how doctrinal error has threatened the church. This is why Paul instructs the church in the beginning of chapter three to look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There were those who preached Jesus plus circumcision, the Judaizers. Which, which could easily lead to one putting their confidence and their faith in what they could do or what they had done instead of wholly and fully trusting in the gospel. Let me tell you this evening, Jesus plus anything is nothing. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus alone has done what was necessary to pay the penalty for our sin and to make it possible for us to be reconciled once again in right relationship with a holy God. Jesus plus anything equals nothing because Jesus and Jesus alone is everything. And so he admonishes the Philippians to follow after their example in trusting in Christ and Christ alone. I also think that division or disunity had begun to to take place and begin to threaten the church in Philippi as well. Paul addresses in the next verse after the passage that we're looking at tonight in 4.2, he entreats Udio... Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I think this is why he calls them to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind in chapter two. You see, this is this is absolutely essential if we're going to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must in humility consider others as more significant or important than ourselves as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must look out for the interests of others as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not just for for those who are in the family of faith, those who are disciples of Jesus, those who are in the church. But if we're going to, to continue to prioritize the mission of Jesus, this is also necessary as we enter into the world that is and engage people who are far from Jesus. We consider them as more important than ourselves as we take the gospel to them. You see, Jesus wants to use our community. He wants to use our study and application of the scriptures. He wants to use our fellowship, the way we hang out with one another. Yes, to conform us to his image, 
But he also wants to use all those things to draw people unto himself. See, the church doesn't exist for the Christian. Christians are what make up the church. But Jesus Christ has given the church so that the world might know who he is. So if we exist, or if we cease to fulfill that purpose, then we essentially begin to no longer fulfill the purpose for which we exist. So Paul extends the invitation to imitate he and Timothy, but he also encourages disciples to to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. I don't know if if many of you learned this this lesson when you were learning to drive. I remember very specifically learning to drive and uh, driving on the interstate or the highway for the very first time. And you don't don't learn this lesson until you're, you're, you're like in the situation. And I'm driving on the highway with my dad and an 18 wheeler begins to come up on the side. And, you know, you're 16 years old. You're learning to drive for the very first time. And you got this ginormous truck like coming next to you. And like you just want to freak out. Like you want to like hold the steering wheel and watch the truck and make sure that the truck like doesn't like run into you. But the danger in that is that if all of your focus and attention is over here, what's going to happen? You're going to drift right towards it. Well, Paul says to the disciples in Philippi that they, he encouraged them to keep their eyes on others in the church, others there in Philippi, other disciples who are also walking according to the example that they have in Paul and Timothy. Why? Because there's others who have fallen away, which we'll look at here in a moment, that if we are not keeping our attention in one direction, then we'll begin to drift in another. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you know much about Hebrews in chapter 11, uh, we have recorded there this litany of faithful men and women uh, throughout the Old Testament who believed the promises of God. They believed the promises of God and God counted it to them as righteous, even though they didn't live to see the fulfillment of those promises. The hall of faith, their heroes. Well, it's in light of those people being listed that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, beginning at verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's exchange witnesses for examples. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of examples, let us also, as they did, lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Another translation would say fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Many might question the authorship of Hebrews. Some would say that it's Paul. Some would say that it's Luke. Some would say that it's somebody else. I think that's all insignificant at this point. But this particular verse reminds me of what Paul said in the passage we looked at last week in chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing words of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm laying all these things aside. I don't want them to tangle me up and keep me from running. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I don't want a righteousness that I can conjure up because of what I've done with my own hands. Isaiah tells us that all of our righteousness before before a holy God is as filthy rags. 
So I don't want to bring that righteousness, but what I want instead is the, the, righteousness, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This This kind of pursuit, this kind of living, this kind of chasing after Jesus, so to speak, this is the example that Paul puts before the Philippians then and even us today in Seattle to imitate, to keep our eyes on Jesus and to keep our eyes on others who are faithfully, humbly, passionately, lovingly striving side by side for the faith of the gospel that we might pattern our lives after them too. And in the same breath, as Paul lays out this invitation to imitate, he also pivots showing his grief for those who don't, or how he is grieving for those who don't join in imitating his example. Now, being that Paul's relationship with the church in Philippi is about 10 years old, and from what he says of them at the beginning of the letter, how uh, they have been partners with him in the gospel from the first day until now, over the course of 10 years, there's had to be some type of communication going back and forth between Paul and the Philippian church, especially being the fact that he says that no one has supported him in the work of the gospel like this church in Philippi. So they've been they've been talking, they've been exchanging letters. Perhaps this perhaps isn't the only letter that Paul sent to the Philippian church, but this is the one that that we have. And and here, Paul hinting at this relationship, I think also gives way to us to understand that he's talked about other disciples along the way. He's shared with them other brothers and sisters who have co-labored with him in the gospel. But he says here in this passage that many of them who he has told them about often, he tells them about even with tears that they have become enemies of the cross. This is a very weighty, weighty statement, a very weighty verse. Because Paul has, has admonished, has probably even commended their example to the Philippians. Man, this is, this is a great brother in the Lord. Man, let me tell you about how he walks with Jesus, how he loves people, how he serves people. But perhaps he has to say now to them with great grief, with tears, that his brother is not walking with Jesus. He's, he's made himself an enemy of the cross. In their commentary on Philippians, two pastors, Tony, Tony Marita and Francis Chan, write this. Who are these enemies of the cross? No one seems to be able to identify them with certainty. Various theologians note that they appear to be people who make some sort of profession of Christian faith, but in reality, they oppose the gospel. They're deceivers. They're pretenders. They shouldn't be confused with those mentioned in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, who were, who were Christians despite having bad motives for ministry, nor should they be thought of as pagans who outright reject the gospel. Instead, they put on a show as Christians or Christian leaders, but a cross-bearing example is missing. Listen to these words. Enemies of the cross do not talk about the cross as their greatest boast, and they don't want to take up their cross and participate in the fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering. 
Their ethic isn't consistent with their profession. And in this passage, Paul warns us to not be drawn away by such people. Paul essentially says that there are those who I've told you about, and I am grieved now to have to tell you that they have, they have stopped walking according to our example. And as a matter of fact, they are doing the very opposite. And in doing so, they have become enemies of the cross. And this is what he has to say about them. Now, again, with deep grief and sadness, first and foremost, that their end is destruction. Because they have become enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Now, this reminds me of God's indictment of the people of Israel as it's written in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says this, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate or torn down, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying of his people then, and I believe Paul is hinting at these these ones who have become enemies of the cross, that they were once in pursuit of Christ. They, They had been tasting the living waters, but thought they could find something better elsewhere. The indictment that God puts before his people is that I'm the fountain of living waters and you have forsaken me. But not only have you forsaken me, an ever flowing fresh supply of living water. But then you have you have hewn out yourself cisterns. You know what a cistern is? It's it's a giant like water pot. You've hewn out for yourself cisterns to hold stagnant water. And you did such a poor job at it because the cisterns are broken and they won't hold the water that you put in them. It's egregious. Jesus reveals in John chapter four to the woman at the well that he is the fountain of living water. These men and women that Paul speak of now as enemies of the cross have done this most egregious thing, having walked away from the only true source of life to pursue worthless, destructive counterfeits of which Paul says will result in their end being destruction. I also want to remind us of the words of Jesus from John chapter 10, verse 10, where he says that the thief only comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, the enemy, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he will connive and he will lie and he will do everything necessary to tempt you to walk away from a life of following Jesus because his whole ambition is to steal, kill, and destroy. But we're to be aware of his schemes so that we don't follow after that pattern. So Paul not only says that their end is destruction, but he goes on to say that their God is their belly. With this description, Paul is saying that those who now walk as enemies of the cross, instead of bowing to Jesus, they bow to their appetites. Whatever they crave, they give into because no longer is Christ their God, but now their belly or their appetites are. In Romans chapter 8, Paul instructs us with this. You, disciples of Jesus, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if you but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not debtors. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As disciples of Jesus, we are no longer obligated or indebted to the desires of our body, to obey our bellies. Our bellies do not have to have reign and rule and mastership over us. We've been set free from that by God's spirit to obey his appetites. As I remember a couple of years back, uh, going through a study of the Ten Commandments, I remember my friend and pastor at the time saying that God has set forth the commandments for his people, for us, to know the things that he loves, that he values, and also to know the things that he hates. And as he brings us into fellowship with him, as he conforms us to his image, he wants us to take on his desires. He wants us to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. Well, God loves life. And he despises anything that takes life. His desire for his people from the very beginning is that we would be holy as he is holy. He says it in Leviticus and it's reiterated again in the New Testament in 1 Peter. But he knows that it's impossible for us to be holy without him. So he's empowered us by his spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But we have to yield to and be filled with the spirit. Again, there, there is what God does, but then there is what we have to respond to and participate with. Because those who Paul speak of have forsaken the fountain of living water and become enemies of the cross. They now obey the passions of their flesh. He also says that they, they glory in their shame. And I think the simplest, straight, most straightforward way to put this is that they're basically not ashamed of anything. Instead of glorying in the cross or making their boast in the Lord, they boast in their shameful deeds. They have no shame. They, they make much of the things that, that, that you ought to be ashamed of. You, your, your parents ever tell you that when you're growing up? You know, you do something, you think it's cute or you think you're getting away with it. And your mom says, you know what? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You know, maybe that was just my mom. But these people, they're not ashamed. They boast in the things that they ought to be ashamed of. Why? Because their minds are set on earthly things. Paul encourages the very antithesis of this with the disciples at Colossae in chapter 3 when he writes these things. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. As disciples of Jesus, our ambition, our sole ambition is ultimately to be where Jesus is. So our thoughts, our conduct, our lives are bent towards heaven because Jesus is there. C.S. Lewis says this, and you saw it in the, in, the, in the reflections. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world, the world that is, were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And it is in so doing that if we are not careful, we can begin the slide, the slippery slide towards becoming enemies of the cross. Now, this sounds so harsh, right? 
calling someone an enemy of the cross. But it's important to recognize that anyone in the church who is not primarily concerned about the gospel, how it bears on our lives and how it propels us to engage the world that is for the sake of the salvation of many, might be an enemy of the cross. You see, there's a lot of great things about the church, about being involved in the life of the church. But we cannot forget the call and commission given to us by Christ to make disciples of all nations. If our discipleship, if our gatherings, if our meetings, if our missional communities, if our fellowship, if all these things cease to undergird and support and serve the advancement of the gospel, making Christ known in the world, then once again, we cease to fulfill the purpose for which we exist as the church of God. But the reason that Paul warns against such people, against those who become enemies of the cross, is that it, it's not a, a hard left turn. I was about to say right turn, but I'm going to do this. So it's not a hard left turn that we take towards becoming enemies of the cross. It's an ever so subtle shift. So he says, join in imitating me and all of those who you see patterning their lives, following the example that you have in us. Keep your eyes on them. So he reminds us then of the hope of heaven. By contrasting the focus of those who are enemies of the cross on the things that are in this world, Paul reminds the disciples in Philippi that their citizenship is in heaven. It's not Rome. And this is an important reminder for us even today. In the face of getting discouraged or up in arms about the, the, the events that are happening in the world that is, we've got to ever keep before us the reality that this is not our home. This isn't our final destination. We are citizens of another kingdom, one that will be made manifest someday. But our purpose in being here is to help people meet our king so that they, too, can come into his kingdom. So our political involvement or our social activism should be with the bent of making Christ known. We pursue justice or social justice because Christ is just. We offer mercy because we have received mercy from a merciful God. We strive to combat things like human trafficking or modern day slavery because Christ came to set the captives free. As his ambassadors, we have the privilege to image him to a broken, to a lost, to a hurting world that they might know that there is more than this. Knowing all along, we're, we don't have it all together. We've not been perfectly restored. But as Paul said earlier in chapter three, we have been apprehended by the one who has come to make all things new. And so we go, knowing that Jesus is the one whom we await from heaven. He's there, but he's coming to rescue his people. And what will he rescue us from? Because he's already rescued us from the penalty of our sin through his death on the cross. And he's already at work in us because of the power of the resurrection to rescue us from the, the ever present power of sin. We can know our hope is the reality that when he returns, he's going to rescue us from what Paul describes as this body of death. In the passage, he says he's going to transform our lowly body to be just like his. And how will he do this? Paul says he will do it by the very power of with which he's able to 
he says, subject all things to himself. I flip the script there and say he's going to do it by the power in which he is able to make all things subject to himself. What is this power? It's the power that he refers to in Matthew 28 when he says all power in heaven and on earth has been given into my hand. And then he commissions us to go out and make disciples. Well, this all power is the power by which he will transform our bodies to become just like his. Jesus is the one with all power and all authority. He is the one who has the name above every name. There is no one who is higher. There is no one who is greater. There is no one who is like Jesus. So in light of all those things, Paul then finally issues the admonition. He urges the Philippians and us today to stand firm in the Lord. Follow after his example. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to that example. Make sure that, that you're, you're keeping your heart in check so that you don't veer off into areas that, that begin to, to cause you to, to step into the grounds of being an enemy of the cross. Knowing that Christ is coming and that he's going to rescue us, he's going to redeem us. Don't be led astray, getting caught off into the things of this world. But chase after the fountain of living water, the one who, who will satisfy your every desire, your every need. Focus your heart's attention on heaven and on the all-powerful, all-merciful, all-sufficient Savior who is coming to rescue us. Stand firm in the Lord as we strive side by side in unity, in humility, with compassion, and with passion as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the admonishment that Paul gives us. Would you pray with us? God, thanks so much for your word tonight. Thank you so much for the power of your spirit to to bring the word alive in us. And we ask that you would do that for your glory and for the salvation of many in our city and ultimately to the ends of the earth. We want to be those who stand firm in you, but we acknowledge that we cannot do it in our own strength, in our own power. We need your help. And so, God, as we continue to respond in these next few moments, Show us the places in our heart that we need to repent of, those places that where we have not allowed the gospel to have the priority that it needs, and in doing so are, are in a place of being tempted, of becoming, in, in danger of becoming enemies of the cross. We want to boast in you, Jesus. We want to boast in glory in the cross and the work that has been accomplished on our behalf and for the, for the sake of mankind. So show us those places as we respond in these next few moments. And as we leave this place, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and make us bold witnesses that we might proclaim this good news of the gospel to those in the world that is. We pray that in Jesus' name.